This episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Club in Real Life, our live event in San Diego, March 12th through 14th, 2020. Get your tickets now at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCC IRL. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 165 as we chat with one of the original Mad Men, copywriter Drayton Bird, about his place among the original Mad Men of advertising, what all copywriters need to master to make their writing better, getting stabbed three times and surviving, and the good advice he got from a Polish count many years ago. Hey, Drayton. Welcome, Drayton. <laughs> nice to talk to you, and I'll tell you something. I got involved in my most third and most expensive marriage uh, to one of the ladies who did have a go at sticking a knife in me. Well, she didn't have a go. She didn't stick a knife in me. Because I was in San Diego. It was all <laughs> your fault. I was in San – I'd actually been – I'd been doing a speech that in um, – Los Angeles, and afterwards I went with some friends and we made our way uh, down the coast, staying somewhere terribly expensive, I can't remember. And then we went to San Diego Zoo and had one or two drinks. And my friend said, uh, let's go down to Mexico. And so we went down to San Diego, to um, the Mexican border in that dangerous town, I think, believe, one of the most dangerous places in, in Mexico. And that's where I got married as a result of being intoxicated. <laughs> that's a romantic, romantic um, story. So are you telling us you're not going to come to San Diego for our event? Is that what you're saying here? Too dangerous? <laughs> I can't afford to come twice. <laughs> Tijuana, that was, that was where it was. I remember us driving in, into Tijuana. And I looked on the left-hand side, it said you can get married immediately. I think I was on the right-hand side going on. And on the left-hand side, it said divorce within 24 hours. <laughs> I thought, what can I possibly lose? And I said to this lady, who was actually the widow of my best friend who'd killed himself. Well, that's another story. Um, I said, let's get married. And she said, you're kidding. I said, no. I said, this is a limited time offer. I said, you've got, you've got to make up your mind before six o'clock. So she said, what can we use for a ring? And I said, you can use the ring of Martin, who was my best friend, who'd been her husband, who killed himself. Um, and then she said, what should we wear? What should I wear? I wasn't bothered about what I was wearing. So I don't know whether you've ever tried to shop San uh, Tijuana looking for something really elegant, but it's not easy. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. She finally found something, and we got married there, there and then. And I would say that cost me overall in the region of about three million pounds that, that evening. Oh, wow! <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! 
So that's the, so. But you really want to talk about copywriting, don't you? It's so much more interesting than people killing themselves. <laughs> well, we want to talk about copywriting, and we also want to talk about everything else too, and getting stabbed, and everything else you've included in your your book. But let's start with your story. How did you end up as a the top direct marketer and a copywriter? Let's start there. I don't know. I think maybe it's perhaps I mean, if you hang around for long enough, everyone else dies. <laughs> <laughs> I think because I think I did reasonably well because before I even became a copywriter, I'd, I'd written for a magazine for a while, so I knew how to write. And I think I was helped by the fact that unlike practically everyone I can make out in this business, I bothered to study. And while I was starting my, even before I started my first copywriting job, I'd started reading a lot of books about advertising, and particularly books written by people who made a lot of money oh, 40 or 50 years before then. I remember reading a fantastic book by a guy who did all the marketing for the International Correspondence Schools, which, if you read it today, would still teach you a lot. I think the, the – I don't think it's so much talent. It's just study, you know. I don't think people study enough. I think that they uh, they think, oh, I, I'm going to be creative, and they go around trying to be creative. Uh this is a big mistake. The first thing to do if you want to write anything any good, be it copy or anything else, uh, is to be sure about what you want to say, not to say I'm going to be creative. You can start by being creative and you can end up anywhere. It may be relevant or not. If you start by doing the right thing, you may end up being creative. <laughs> it doesn't work the other way around. Yeah. So you First, you're looking for the right idea and then you worry about how to express it. Whereas a lot of people nowadays, um, and this has always been true, um, start by trying to do something clever and then hope it will fit in with whatever the hell they're trying to sell. So that I think that was uh, one reason I did okay. I think the second reason is I was extremely well-read quite, quite young. I, I, in my early teens and even before that, I used to belong to the local public library and you could only take out three books in a day. And so I used to read more than three books in a day. And so I, I joined another library. <laughs> so sometimes I read four books a day. So I spent a lot of my teenage years reading, 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 and very often reading uh, the kind of things which have got nothing whatsoever to do with copywriting, no, but nobody knew what copywriting was then. I was brought up in a pub in Manchester, outside Manchester, and um, when my father told his uh, his cronies in the bar, um, my son Drayton's just got this amazing job, paid more than money than he could believe, copywriting, nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what it was. What's copywriting? What does, what does he copy? Yeah, it was a, it was it it really wasn't known as a skill. I think also um, if you want to be uh, good at anything, you have to be confronted with uh, a lot of challenges. And nowadays, um, 
everyone is uh, crazy about digital. They're all talking about digital. Um, I always think of the digital swine running over the cliff. Um, the first four four jobs I got in the agency I joined, which took a lot of effort to get into, um, were all different. Uh, one was a piece of direct mail to sell some machinery. Uh, one was um, to sell a local restaurant or a chain of local restaurants. The other two were, again, entirely different. I can't remember exactly what they were, but they, they one was direct mail, one was an advertisement, one was a salesman's organiser. A salesman's organiser is something that a salesman takes round with him to remind himself of what he's got to say to the, the customer. Yeah, Those are the three I can remember. So you, you were expected to be able to do anything. Uh, it wasn't regarded as a, you know, you oh, I just do so-and-so. I just do financial services. I, do, I had to do everything. I don't think um, you can be in any way remarkable unless you have really faced all the the challenges and all the media that are open to you. So it's a, it was, I was lucky in the sense that I had that challenge. And I think a lot of people now specialise in what in English we call niches and in America they sometimes call niches. But uh, no, so I, I think that's that. those are some of the reasons. Um, I think uh, reading... A far wider range of things, I believe, than most people do was a great help. I think I'm particularly fascinated and was fascinated then and still fascinated by 18th and 17th and 16th century writers, uh, people of the same before Shakespeare and after Shakespeare, particularly into the 18th century. I also remember reading Winston Churchill's um, biography of the Duke of Marlborough, who is his ancestor, three very heavy volumes. I read everything. Uh, David Ogilvy was once asked um, what um, makes a good copywriter, and he said, a well-furnished mind, he said, amongst other things. Um, I think I was fortunate I had a fairly well-furnished mind I think also um, I'm absolutely fascinated by anything I don't know. <laughs> Anytime a client comes along to me and says, um, we want to write you about, about so-and-so, and I know nothing about it, I'm absolutely delighted. I remember when the, <clears throat> the last time I – well, not the last time I was in California because I have a daughter who lives in Los Angeles, but – about oh, seven or eight years ago, I went to do a training program for some people in Portland who made measuring instruments. I think they're the world's biggest makers of measuring instruments. I knew nothing about measuring instruments. <laughs> so I thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> so show me something I don't know and I'm interested. You have to have a, an open and inquiring mind to be a good copywriter. And I don't think I'm particularly remarkable at all i've just been around uh, longer than most and uh, made more mistakes than most you've definitely created a remarkable um 
uh, persona based around you. You know, you're known sort of as the, maybe one of the last of the Mad Men. You knew David Ogilvy personally. Uh, in fact, if if the quotes on your Wikipedia page are to be believed, he said that you know more about direct marketing than anyone in the world, which is quite a compliment coming from him. Tell us how you met him, how you got to know him, and uh, maybe some of the things that you learned from David Ogilvy. Oh, very interesting. Um, I first uh, came across him when I, I got my first creative director's job when I was about 26, I think, in, in, uh, in an agency in London, about 80 people. Um, and I'd started, apart from reading everything else, I started reading uh, Confessions of an Advertising Man. And from him and from other people, I noticed a huge focus on testing. Um, so I was very interested to see what worked and what didn't. And so I started doing two things at that agency. I encouraged all my clients to, to test things and see what worked. And I kept on being fascinated by this Jeff Ogilvy. I then went into business um, as a copywriter for a company where I, for the first, not the first time, well, first of many times I failed to make a fortune. But um, when that business went broke, I ended up with what was then uh, probably the hottest advertising agency in the world. Uh, nobody's heard of it now, I don't think. It was called Papa Koenig and Lois. Koenig and Lois were the people who were, uh, George Lois, a, a maniac, um, they put together probably the best television commercial ever created for the Volkswagen. It's called the Snowplow. I love Did, that. Have you app. seen it? Yeah, it's fantastic. It, it's it, you're right. It's got to be one of the top ten commercials ever made. Yeah, well, I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, so I worked for them, and that was a highly political agency. Uh, and I was one of the people who lost out in the struggle for power. <laughs> and one of the other guys there, one of the other group heads there, said, uh, why don't you go work for David Ogilvy? And this chap was a man called Peter Mayo, had worked with Ogilvy in New York. And I wrote Ogilvy a letter, which I wish I'd kept because it must have been one of the best letters I've ever written. All I can remember is the beginning, which said, uh, dear Mr. Ogilvy, you've never heard of me, but I have a quality that I know you prize. I know how to make people buy things. <laughs> don't know what the rest of it said. I got an immediate reply. Um, and he arranged an interview, which I never attended. I never attended because I didn't want to leave my children in England and go to America. Um, so then I had nothing to do with him. Um, what happened was I, I went into the mail order business with a partner. We made a hell of a lot of money. We lost a hell of a lot of money. I went broke. We both went broke. I then spent seven years living under a false name because <laughs> I owed so much money to the tax people. Um, and then I decided the only thing I could uh, do, or somebody suggested to me, to me, it wasn't my idea, to start an agency specializing in direct response. And within three and a half years, we were the biggest agency of its kind in the UK. And we were approached by eight of the top uh, 20 advertising agencies interested in buying us. And one of them was Ogilvy & Mather. And we sold to Ogilvy & Mather. And that came about because of, 
a letter I wrote in an advertising magazine called Campaign. And somebody had been very rude about David Ogilvy, very dismissive, and I wrote a letter saying this fellow was an idiot and wasn't fit to kiss David Ogilvy's arse. I don't know exactly how I put it, but the next thing that happened was the phone rang and the voice at the other end said, David Ogilvy here, is this a very nice letter you wrote? <laughs> and I turned to my, put 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 my, I said, David Ogilvy, <laughs> Put my hand over the receiver. Um, and the next day, his chairman from England, a man, one lovely man, Peter Warren, rang me up and he said, that was a very nice letter you wrote to, to David, for, about David. He said, um, would you like to have lunch? And I put my hand over the telephone receiver and I turned to my PA and I said, Ogilvy's want to buy us. <laughs> and that's how I first spoke to him. It was curious I got on well with him. Uh, I, uh, everyone was, I think, rather frightened of him. He could be, he, he didn't suffer fools gladly, and he could be a beast. I remember the first time I saw him after we sold, I went for a meeting in um, in Amsterdam, and I'm the most absent-minded person you can imagine, and I lost my way to the office. <laughs> And eventually went running along a canal, sweating like a pig, and got to the right office and got in there. And there was David sitting on a a couch, and he patted the couch next to me. He said, oh, he's great. And he said, come and sit here. So I went and sat next to him, and he said, my God, he said, what's that? He said, you smell like a horse boudoir. Because I, I used to use a lot of cologne in those days. And I said, how do you know, David? <laughs> <laughs> And I, I just got on, I, I don't know, got on very well with him. Um, went to stay with his, at his chateau, got on very well with his wife, um, had some lovely evenings with him. Very interesting, extraordinary man. Uh, he talked to about all sorts of things, like his years when he was in the research business and how he used to, when he had Helena Rubinstein as a client, he used to go and sit on her bed, sell the advertising to her. Of course, he was a very good-looking man. <laughs> Drayton, what would you say? What would you say you learned from working so closely with him and and um, befriending him? What did you learn from him? What lessons did you pull away from him? Well, apart from everything that he he said about um, creative work, which is all in Ogilvy and advertising. Ogilvy on advertising. I'm amazed. I did a talk about three or four years ago to an audience of young people, quite a few of whom were from Ogilvy and Mather, and I did learnt most of them hadn't read Ogilvy on advertising, which I thought was rather like somebody claiming to be a Christian but never having read the Bible. First of all, he was incredibly hardworking. Secondly, he was absolutely obsessed with research and testing. Thirdly, he was very good at finding good people, spotting good people. Fourthly, uh, he was extraordinarily uh, perceptive about how to run a business. I, I, the other day I went to a, a lock-up because I'm, I'm producing this book and I wanted to f- see if I'd got any old photographs or uh, this, that and the other. Uh, 
and I found something there which I'd forgotten about, which was the Ogilvy uh, book on how to run an agency, which was had a forward by David Ogilvy, and he was incredibly good at um, working out how to run a business and how and he had laid prodigious emphasis on um, how to treat people, how to have the right sort of culture, um, what to do under almost every possible circumstance. The sort of thing I learned was that when you've got a client, you should do more than just uh, what you're asked to do. But you should be, have the thinking of that client in the back of your mind all the time. And I remember as a result of this, when I was, I used to travel around the world a lot. And if I ever saw anything that, that seemed to relate to a client's business, I would write them a note and say, oh, I was, I was in Australia and Sydney the other day and I saw so-and-so and I thought of you. Well, it, this is a smart thing to do. <laughs> it's a smart thing to think about your clients above and beyond uh, delivering what they've asked you for. Um, people will always do business with you if you if you go the extra mile or ten miles. Um, it, it's so uh, his whole attitude was very interesting, and of course he was extraordinarily well read. Um, the, the the library in his 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 office in the chateau was extraordinary. Um, yeah, he was a first class mind. There aren't many first class minds around. Um, if you're not a first class mind, then it's a good idea to try and make your way in the in the right direction. By <laughs> by studying things above and beyond. Um, what you're trying to do every day by having a broader mind, uh, by having a more informed mind, because the, the, the secret of creativity is not, uh, you know, I'm going to do something different. Good creative work comes from taking two things which do not naturally seem to be connected and putting them together in a surprising way. Huh? That's, what, that's what gets the reaction when somebody goes, oh, never thought of that. That's, that it, it, it's something has been presented to them in an unexpected way. Yeah. Um, I think that's, uh, and you can only do that if you have a very wide uh, resource of knowledge and interests um, behind you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Drayton, you can we talk about copy mastery for for a minute or two? You've worked with dozens, maybe even hundreds of copywriters over the course of your career. You've trained many of them. What are the things that we as copywriters need to know or to learn or to do differently in order to become true masters of the craft? I think I've almost said it really. I mean, more study. More study. The the I I there's a chap who came to me about oh, 10 years ago, and he said, I was speaking at a place called the Institute of Marketing in the country here. And after I'd finished, he came up to me and he said, I want to work for you. Do you need, you know, it's not, I'm quite well read, blah, 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 da, da, da. Do you need anyone? So I said, no, I don't. Um, 
And then he, he kept on chasing me. He said, he said, all right, he said, I'm going to start an agency. Um, will you be my chairman? So I said, yeah. I can't say his agency did okay. Um, he's a very interesting fellow, very unusual, because after about 10 years, he suddenly said, uh, he said, I've decided to become a doctor. And he is now a doctor. I went out and got drunk with him about oh, a couple of months ago. And then he wrote to me the other day. He said, by the way, so I've got all these advertising books um, that I don't need anymore. Would you like them? So I said, yeah. And I've got, I'm, I'm sitting in my the drawing room in, in our house here and um, I'm looking at a big box and it's got all his books in there. And he's he read books I haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> I always look for people um, who had who had broad minds. I always look for interesting people or odd people. I haven't met um, all that many copywriters who are, if you like, normal. <laughs> the, the editor of my book, who is a copywriter originally, um, has two hobbies. She keeps sheep and she does trapeze. She's a trapeze artist. And the minute I heard this, I thought, what a wonderful woman. <laughs> I, I, I find it hard to believe that uh, people who are not interesting in themselves are likely to be any good as copywriters uh, or creators. I don't really – for a long time in my career, I, I did all my own layouts, um, and I don't, I'm not just interested in copywriters. I, I think – uh, one of the most talented people I ever employed um, is a chap who lives in Singapore now, but he, he joined me as an art director. And after he'd been with me as an art director for a while in Soho in London, where my offices were then, he, he started his own mail order business. He started his own mail order business because he thought if he wanted to understand what he was supposed to do, he should understand the business. That man was voted the number one creative director in Asia, which is quite a big place, three years running. Uh, one of the most talented people I've ever met. But he was not a copywriter. I'm, I'm, I, I assume that anybody that can uh, do creative work can write a bit of copy. Um, and anybody who can write a bit of copy can, if, if needed, do his own layout. I, I did my own layouts for quite a long time. Um, not that difficult um, because what a lot of people do when it comes to layout is they want to do something unusual, whereas the fact is that the layouts that work best um, are the classic layouts, you know, uh, a big squared-up halftone picture, uh, uh, maybe a line above it, a headline underneath it, a subhead, four columns of coffee if it's a full page, uh, a dropped initial cut to encourage readership, crossheads so that the copy is broken up. It's very simple. <laughs> I mean, to, to be told that you're any good at this is not really all that flattering, you know. I mean, I think any anybody educated and determined and curious uh, can write copy, assuming they can, assuming they can write, you know. It sounds like... Drayton, it sounds like you're saying to become a better writer, you need to be 
more well-read and more interesting as a human being. Do you think some people, is it possible, can we all be that interesting person or do you believe that certain people have it and some people don't? I think there is there is this this um, mixture, isn't there, of uh, what you are and what you become. You know, when people talk about heredity and environment, um, you know, we are what we are as a result of heredity and environment. We are as 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 creative people, the results of what we are and the environment in, in which we find ourselves or which we determine to place ourselves. Yeah? So I don't think that um, you can take somebody completely without talent and turn them into a copywriter, no. Um, I think uh, you can take somebody with some talent and make them competent. My um, possibly, well, one of the most talented people I know is somebody who saw me speaking at a university whose background was that she had been a PhD in philosophy in in, um, in Italy. She was Italian. Um, and then she'd gone into uh, the gaming industry. And she saw me speaking at the university and said, oh, I'd like to work with you. And she became a copywriter. Um, now, you obviously, you'll appreciate that somebody who's Italian is not naturally gifted at writing English copy. Yeah. Um, and she was with me for some time, and then she joined uh, a financial services organization, which is very big in, well, it's the biggest of its kind in, in the UK. And about um, three years ago, she went into business with a partner in a very specialized investment business. And I would imagine she's probably worth about two or three million pounds now, starting from nothing. Just because she works incredibly hard, and she's educated, she's intelligent, and she's very, very determined. But she must have had this creative flair. She must have this creative flair. So we work with what we have, don't we? Her boss um, is not in the least bit creative, but when he was a client of mine, uh, he's now her partner, um, he used to write his own copy. It wasn't very good copy, but it did the job. Huh? So the first thing is to be competent, isn't it? Most people are not competent because they don't understand the rules. Right. So once we understand the rules and we want to have a well-furnished mind like Ogilvy, like you, um, you mentioned read as much as you can. Uh, it sounds like you've traveled around the world um, many times. Is it So is it about travel and saying yes to experiences to be more weird and to have this well-furnished mind? Is it about the people you surround yourself with? And what else can we do to live this more interesting life that gives us these ideas? Well, I mean, it, surely it must be, it must be uh, you know, the, nearly all old sayings and cliches, old sayings and cliches tend to be cliches and old sayings catch on because they're true. So b- b- birds of a feather flock together. Um, interesting people tend to gravitate to interesting people. Boring people tend to gravitate to boring people. (laughs) If you're interesting, you're likely to be able to interest other people. Um, If you strive for um, to be deliberately odd or peculiar, um, that doesn't necessarily mean you're actually going to be creative. 
actually the biggest single weapon in success um, was very well put by an Australian friend of mine who used to run Ogilvy and Mather Direction in Australia. And I got him to come over to do a talk in, I think it was Belgium. And he stood up and he said, I would like to talk to you about the the three reasons why creative work fails. Uh, and and it won't take me long. And he said, the first reason is the brief. The second reason is the brief. And the third reason is the brief. So the most important document in a relationship with a client, to me, is the brief. And we have a briefing uh, template that we give to clients. And if they don't fill it in, we can't help them. (laughs) It tells us everything we want to know. know, What did you do before? Uh, Did it work? Did it not work? Uh, who, Who would buy from you? Who doesn't buy from you? Why do they buy? When do they buy? And so on. I think it's about 32 questions long. If you write, if you write, if you ask the right answers, ask the right questions and get the answers, you're going to end up with better creative work, aren't you? Drayton, I would like to know um, a little bit about the legacy that you're, you know, building for yourself. It seems like over the last couple of years, you've done some uh, seminars. You're really trying to pass on your your knowledge and a lot of the things that you've learned over the years. You did something in Poland, I believe, just this last summer that was a pretty big hit. I heard a lot of good things from a few people who were there, and I believe you also have a new book coming out. You know, telling some of your life story. Tell us a little bit about. You know what's uh, pushing you to to do all of that, and and maybe uh, share a little bit from the new book. Well, the t- the last I've I've always done seminars regularly. Um, I think I've 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 done seminars in about fifty fifty odd countries. Um, that's an exercise in itself. Um, I, I remember going to Kazakhstan and discovering the 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 Kazakhstan national dishes horse. Um, and I'm not all that keen on horse. <laughs> Wherever you go, you'd find oddities. But no, the one in the one in Poland was, I think, was to celebrate my 83rd birthday, and it was just an excuse for a lot of copywriters to get together and get drunk. Um, as far as I can make out, well, there, there were some very interesting talks. The last thing I did was actually, oddly enough, in Bulgaria. I've been going there for quite a long time. What do I think about a legacy? The first significant book I wrote, which was called Common Sense Direct Marketing and is now called Common Sense Direct and Digital Marketing, I think, that's been going since 1982. So I would be extremely pleased if after I've gone, people are still reading it in 2082. The autobiography is quite different from a teaching book. It is a, a book about um, all the rather odd things that have happened to me. Um, and it's really strange. It's 30-odd years ago, uh, somebody who was a creative group had in London said to me, oh, you should write your autobiography. And I th- so I said, don't be stupid. I said, I've, I've never done anything very interesting. I've not fought any battles, uh, not done anything at all exciting. Um I've just done okay at this so far, uh, and I forgot about it. And then somebody else suggested it to me much more recently, and then I started uh, writing things, and I suddenly realized that um, 
I have had quite an odd life. Um, I was writing this today, actually, an, an email about the autobiography, about my my mother in 1938 coming down the stairs in the little house we lived in, and she was heavily pregnant with my my brother. And she looked through the banisters and she saw in the front room my father making love to her mother. They had the most extraordinary relationship, and that wasn't the only naughty thing he did. My best friend and business partner killed himself, hung himself. I ended up marrying his widow in Tijuana um, and uh, bringing up his children and bringing up her children by her first marriage. And because I, in my business with him, as I mentioned before, I made lost so much money, I had to live under a false name. That's a, then I start, I start thinking about my life. And I think, oh, God, that was a bit, a bit unusual. First of all, because I, I lived with uh, quite a variety of women, some of whom I'd married and some of whom wouldn't have anything to do with me. Um, so my first wife was English. My The next person I was with was a girl who's what they used to call a lady of the night. Um I lived with her for a while, and she was but she was extremely jealous. She was the one that first one that actually tried to stick a knife in me. Um, after her, I thought that's not going to go very far. That's not. I don't see much future in that. Um, I then went to live with a Polish girl who said to me, and "It's these things that I think make life interesting." She said to me one day, she said, "My friend Eva is working in a striptease dancer." and making a lot of money, do you think I should do it? So I said, look, darling, I said, you don't really want my opinion at all. What you want me to do is to tell you what you want to do, and I can tell what you want to do is to make a lot of money stripping. So I'll tell, I won't tell you what you should do, I'll tell you what will happen. I said, what will happen is you know, a lot of men will spend a lot of time looking at you all day long, and I won't go into more details. I said, it will really put you off sex, and it won't do much for our love life. Um, that's exactly what happened. And one evening she came back about two o'clock in the morning and I, I complained about her performance or lack of it. And being Polish, she was very excitable. Um, and she reached out to the side of the bed and picked up a plate and hit me on the face with it. And that hit me on an artery, so I could have bled to death. And so I, I was very fortunate because if that happened to me today, I'd probably be dead. Because I then walked up to her a hospital which was about half a mile away and I was they managed to save me um but that if that happened now they wouldn't be able to because that hospital is now a hotel that lasted for a bit and then I ran into this a lady who had who told me these stories that I couldn't believe said, oh she had an affair with Robert Mitchum and blah 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 and and she was actually a Maori princess from New Zealand. Um, and she'd been a lead dancer with the Catherine Dunham Ballet, which is one of the number, the, the two great modern ballets, the foundations of modern ballet in a way. Um, and she was quite extraordinary. I went, uh, I was with her for seven years, but she was manic depressive. Um, and used to keep on trying to kill herself. So I used to have a season ticket to the hospital. Um, and I remember going there one day and 
she tried to kill herself and they'd managed to resuscitate her and and I was leaning over her bed and I looked at her and I said, thank God you're alive. And she said, why did you stop me? She ran off with a Swedish lawyer. <laughs> then she came back. <laughs> and that was an extraordinary experience because I was um, I was doing my first big international speech. I think my first or second, I my first in Switzerland. And... When she said she was coming back, I went to the airport and picked her up and then took her to Switzerland and we stayed in a beautiful hotel. And she said to me, uh, after she sat there and looked at me with admiration uh, as I did my speech, um, and then she said to me, has somebody been sleeping, been using our bed? Well, obviously, while she'd been away, I hadn't been living the life of a monk. And I just said, I said, look, I said, I said, forget about it. I said, somebody's been using my wife, so don't worry about whether somebody. But she said, this is not going to work. And she left me. <laughs> uh, went back to to Sweden. And I discovered that afterwards that the the guy she was with, the, the lawyer she was seeing, was a was a transvestite or had the inclinations in that direction. <laughs> and she was with him for a bit, and then she came back again. <laughs> Can you can you tell us about you, you? It seems like you talk in your book, at least by the bullets, about your parents and their relationship. Can you share why you think their marriage survived? A very simple reason. My mother came from uh, a very old family. I live in Bristol, and if you are in Bristol, you will see that a fair amount of Bristol is named after a man called Colston. Edward Colston, who was actually a slave trader. He was the leading slave trader on, for a while in the UK. Rather ironic, since my third wife is black, this is African-American. And my mother came from that family, yeah. Um, and, but her father ran into this very flighty lady, whom I mentioned that he ended up, that her husband ended up with in the front room of Marley Drive in Sale a few years later. Um, she came from a wealthy family, and her marriage with my grandfather split up. And so my mother and her sisters were became second-class citizens, as it were, with the, uh, her father's uh, second wife. So they were deeply unhappy children, she and her two sisters, deeply unhappy children. And she swore that she would never, ever desert her children. And that's why she stayed with my father, who also actually inflicted, uh, gave her a venereal disease. Um, and the strange thing is, um, despite the, this extraordinary um events, these events in, a, in their marriage, um, they loved each other dearly. Uh, I, I've, I've seen um, letters that he wrote to her uh, expressing his love. And I always remember she told me the most ex remarkable story. What they did, they killed themselves for my brother and I, in a way, because 
my father was a very, very talented salesman, and he was the one of the leading representatives of, of the Dunlop Rubber Company in England. And his number two eventually became the managing director of the Dunlop Rubber Company. He would have been the managing director of Dunlops in England. It's a huge organisation. But he decided he wanted to make enough money quickly so that he could send his children to really good schools, expensive schools. And so my mother and he took uh, a rundown pub in a, uh, a town outside Manchester called Ashton under Line. And they turned it into a, a huge success. They made a lot of money. I was trying to work out how much money they were really making when you translate it into today's currency. Yeah? Made a lot of money. And they did send us both to very expensive schools. Um, and I ran away from the first one with my brother and was taken back. I didn't run away from the second one because I knew I'd get sent back. But we were both very unhappy at these schools. But they achieved their ambition of sending their children to very good schools. But in the process, they both became alcoholics. He died young, and she became an alcoholic. So I, I always think my children, my parents killed themselves for because of their love for us, you know. And they, but they had great love for each other. I always remember my mother telling me a story. My father was a deeply eccentric, very, very. I mean, the reason that pub was so successful is she was incredibly beautiful and he was extraordinarily funny. And half of the, the clientele used to come to listen to him and the other half used to come to try and to get into bed with her, and some of them did. Um, and I, she, she told me she was driving into Manchester one day and what she used to do is pull out of the yard where she, our garage was and onto the main road in her convertible Ford. And she told me one day that she he would go come out of the pub and stand on the main road and stop the traffic <laughs> for her. Of course, there wasn't so much traffic then, but it was. He told she told me he leant over one day and he said to her, "I can't blame anyone for falling in love with you, darling." So I found when I tried to uh, describe my life. That there was quite there were some quite extraordinary things, and and they're divided into two halves, if you like. They're divided into that half about the extraordinary relationships that my parents had and I had, um, um, their extraordinary relationships, and also my own career in this business, um, which at the time I set up set out on it was not of any great interest to people uh, but everybody the, the degree of interest today in the art of persuasion through communication is greater I believe than ever before, ever before. and I've been fortunate or unfortunate I don't know <laughs> by chance I happen to have been around at the time when um, this business came from being another business to being something that is pervasive, um, particularly pervasive because of the internet. And I can remember when uh, the internet came along, 
And somebody said to me, so what is it? You know, what, what's it all about? And I said, don't be stupid. It's, it's just accelerated direct marketing. There is nothing whatsoever in, that's going on in the internet that, that does not relate either very obviously or less obviously to what has always been done in direct marketing. In other words, um, let's take one of the most powerful weapons in in direct marketing that is member get a member. Yeah, you've got someone who's a customer, and one of the great truths about selling to people and about who you should be selling to is that the customer you want is like the customer you've got. Yeah, and customers flock together. So if you look at the internet, when somebody communicates to a friend uh, about something that they bought, yeah, who is that friend likely to be? It's likely to be someone like them. Yeah? So it's all the, the whole process is the same. It's just accelerated. And because there is appears to be a great deal of money involved, the more and more people have got involved in it, uh, and also more and more rogues um, are abroad uh, extracting money from the gullible uh, for what I call misinformation marketing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, Drayton, when we were uh, emailing back and forth about this interview, you told us that you had a story about a Polish count who gave you some Fantastic advice. And I'm curious if you would share that story with us. Oh, Count Kapinski. You see, this is what's so interesting about – I have to confess, you know, as I said earlier, I didn't, wasn't planning to write anything and then other people persuaded me and then I started thinking about it. And there are quite a few things I won't be able to get in, but I think this, this will get in. I'm thinking I might have to do another volume. But, okay, during the 1970s um, – after I went broke, my partner, Martin, went into business with some mafia crooks and ended up hanging himself. And I did anything and everything to make money. I needed money uh, because my wife had previously been married to a millionaire. Um, and I always remember going into Harrods with her and I saw something. I think it may have been a briefcase. And I said, oh, it's really nice. And she said, why don't you buy it? And I said, I can't afford it. And she said, how horrible not to be able to afford anything you want. (laughs) But uh, amongst the many, many things I did, I wrote speeches for the chairman of General Foods. I I did – I wrote France, sold franchises in France for swimming pools in France and Germany. I sold fake Chagall paintings in Australia, or to be more exact, I failed to sell fake Chagall paintings in Australia. I did almost everything. And one of the things I did, which I hated most, was uh, working for a guy called Count Kapinski. Uh, and I met him because in the Hilton Hotel in London, there was a sort of gathering in the lobby there of crooks who used to uh, plot their their devious plots um, in the lobby there. And I got to know some of them. And one of them, who was a rogue called Val, uh, introduced me to Kapinski. Who, and Kapinski was an astonishing man. He was one of the men who charged the German tanks on horseback in 1940. 
And I admired him prodigiously, partly because he was 60 and he was living with a 19-year-old girl. That gave me something to aim for. <laughs> and I, the job I had with him was terrible. I hate the telephone. The telephone terrifies me. I can't see the person at the other end. You can't see what they really think. You know, do you understand what I mean? It's a sort of half-blind communication. Well, it's totally blind. Uh, you, you know, you, you can't quite read somebody, you know. But selling to people on the telephone is a nightmare. And what I was had to sell for him was investments in malt whiskey in bond. The subject's about which I knew nothing whatsoever. I'd learned very quickly. So I used to have to sit there on the bloody phone trying to sell these people malt whiskey for investment. And I think something else, but I can't remember what it was. But the one thing I noticed about Kapinski was that like um, – and he did come from a very, very old Polish family. Um, like <laughs> a lot of Poles, he did like a drink. Uh, I mean, the Polish girl, the stripper I lived with, she liked a drink, and boy, did she used to get excited when she had a few drinks. Um, and I couldn't understand how he was so fit. And I said, Kapinski, we were in the pub. We used to go to the pub every day. I said, you drink like a bloody fish. How come you're still alive? And he said, Drayton, he said, one day a week I don't drink. Now, I have to tell you that between 1967 and 2004, I was probably intoxicated to a greater or lesser degree six days a week. But on the seventh day, I didn't drink <laughs> because of Kapinski. Uh, I think I would have died had I carried on. Um, but in 2004, I met somebody who was – alarmed at my habit of drinking a bottle of wine at lunchtime and a bottle of wine in the evening and maybe a couple of drinks more and managed to uh, save me from it. That was Kapinski, the advice he gave me. But there are so many people that I met that that were that I learned things from. There was another guy called Sammy Gold. Sammy Gold was from New York. And I worked for him. He was another guy I worked for. I was his creative director. He was selling swimming pools in uh, in England, which the weather is not perfect. <laughs> I, I was his, so I was his marketing director. Sammy gave me all sorts of advice, but he also told me very interesting stories about what happened to him. He was a chiropractor in New York and – one of his patients was a leading, an eminent member of the mafia. <laughs> and it, it took a shine to it. Somebody was very likable. And he said, look, he said, my son, he said, is very, is a bit, a bit of a hothead. He said, I, would you go around with him and make sure he doesn't get into trouble when he's going to collect money from the slot machines? Yeah? And that's what Sammy did. And eventually the, this a uh, guy who's, I can't remember his name, the mafioso, gave Sammy his own slot machine route in New York and, and eventually um, gave him the opportunity of really starting up in a big way. And there were some machines that Sammy was going to get. We were in a warehouse somewhere in Texas. And apparently the FBI heard about this and raided the warehouse and took all the machines away. And um, 
And the mafia came to Sammy and said, you owe us, you know, $100,000 or whatever it was, and you better pay up. And Sammy said, well, it's not my fault the plate, and they said, we don't care, you've got to pay up. And he told me about how he would get messages. Your daughter is at such and such at the moment. It's a nice little girl. Let's hope something, nothing nasty happens to her. And eventually it got to they would call him and say, meet us at Santa, we want to talk to you. And tell him to get the money. And eventually he said that he was calling. He said, look, I don't care what you do. He said, I don't care. You can kill me. I, you know, that, I don't care. And they said, hmm. And they, they actually let him off and said, you, you, you go to England, don't come back. And that's how I met him. And I always remember him saying interesting things. Um, I remember him saying, uh, never part with somebody in business on such terms that you can't do business with them again. He had a lot of interesting sayings. Um, and I do remember one of the smartest, it's strange how little things stick in your mind about what what you mean by being, in quotes, creative. He was selling swimming pools. Uh, we're doing okay. And I was writing his ads and so on. And I said to him, Sammy, I said, tell me something. I said, why do people swim? <laughs> he said, what? I said, why do you think people swim? And he said, oh, I said, uh, you know, it's it's healthy, it's nice, you know, the sunshine. It adds value to the home, which it doesn't. Um, and I said, I tell you what, Sammy, I think people swim because they like to swim. He said, what do you mean? I said, tell me something else, Sammy. Tell me, if you take a swimming pool and instead of it being – uh, so long and so wide, you make it a little narrower and a little longer, would it cost you any more? And he said, no. Oh, I said, that's interesting. And I wrote him and it said, get four extra feet of swimming pool free. That really did the business. <laughs> so if you want to be good at copy, it's not good enough to be good at a copy. Yeah? If you want to be extra good, huh? you've got to be thinking about business. And not enough copywriters do. And not enough. Uh, I was talking to one of my partners today about a television commercial. He said, yeah, well, look at this television commercial and see what you think. And I looked at it and I looked at it again. And it's done by a client that we work with. We don't do their television. Um and he said, well, the client had asked me, uh, he said, it would be welcome for any comments you have to make. And I said, that means, I said, he's interested. I said, he's, inter he's quite interested. You have the possibility of getting the television, yeah, which would be nice. So I said, also, what do you think about it? I said, well, it's a beautiful commercial. I said, but, um, but it's too long. <laughs> it takes too long. Um, they could say they could uh, say the same things in a shorter period of time, uh, and also the the 
the agency is in love with their idea. Agencies fall in love with it. You know, they want to be creative. You know, they want to win awards. I don't give a shit about winning awards. Yeah. Um, and I said, it's too bloody long. And I'll tell you what, there is another format that would work a lot better. And I, we're running ads for them that work a lot better. So the two things I would tell you should say to them. First of all, we could probably take something like that and shorten it. We would make it more cost-effective. Or we could do uh, what is the generally reckoned to be the best format for television. Uh, and the best format for television, which Ogilvy did a lot of research into, the best format for television is a... Is a a presenter talking to you. I said, and these people happen to be in the, a health-related business, yeah? And I said, you think of all of the, the the TV commercials that have got a guy who's talking to you who's dressed up to look a bit like a doctor, yeah? People trust doctors. I said, so we should be saying you should be doing something along those lines. And then I went online about an hour ago and I found uh, a very, very long uh, commercial from the US given by a guy who speaks not very good English he's oriental I said but I'll bet you that thing is making a ton of money yeah because it's sincere yeah and what was it a great joke uh, sincerity is what sells you know if you can fake that you can you can, <laughs> you can do anything that's <laughs> It's so true, right? It's, uh, yeah, exactly. So, Drayton, I know we're, we're out of time and there's still so much to talk about, but can you just share if people listening are interested in your book, where, when can they get your book? Where can they get your book? Where can they sign up for it? The best thing to do, because I haven't, because the book is not even ready now, it won't be ready until um, in about three weeks, three or four weeks, yeah, before Christmas. Um, the best thing to do is just to drop me a line and it's just Drayton at DraytonBird.com, Drayton at DraytonBird.com and just say book <laughs> and I'll send you all the di- – and I'll send you the landing page and if you don't like the landing page, that means you're too respectable <laughs> because because <laughs> – a guy saw this landing page the other day and he wrote to me and he said, he said, that is the most outrageous landing page I've ever seen. But the thing is that it's all true. So it's, it's just write to Drayton at DraytonBird.com book and I'll send you more than you ever needed to know about it. But I guarantee if you found this interesting, you'll certainly find the book interesting. We'll definitely link to it in the show notes for the podcast and we'll share it in our group when it becomes available. I know Drayton, you're a member of our group and you pop in occasionally to offer a, you know, a comment or two uh, on a few conversations. So uh, yeah, we'll definitely let people know you've, you've lived a, a crazy life story uh, that I'm sure more than one person is, is interested in learning more about. And uh, if it's peppered with, uh, you know, the lessons that you've shared with us today, that, that's going to be great. So we really appreciate yeah, it's, just a com- it's a combination of stories and it's also about, you know, how you get ahead in business. Maybe more about the kind of attitude you should have. Or maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> I survive. 
And you have to, yeah, I mean, speaking to people listening, you have to check out the landing page at least. Even if you choose that you do not want the book, it is an incredible, entertaining landing page. So it's worth checking out. And I'm excited for my book and to receive that. So thank you, Drayton. This has been fascinating. And um, I've learned a lot in this conversation. And so thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. I wish I was in San Diego. I could go up the road and see my daughter in in Los Angeles. We'll we'll, we'll try to get you out there. We promise uh, no violence, uh, no marriages. um, (laughs) No stabbing. No stabbing. Yeah, just uh, come and have a a great time (laughs) hanging out with us. Thanks, Drayton. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.